So City Church uh, is very focused on passing on our faith well to the next generation in a dynamic way and in a meaningful way. And so each week when we're over here uh, singing songs and studying the scriptures, our kids are in the Kids City buildings doing the same in, the, in a way designed specifically for children. And so each week it takes about 125 volunteers to help us do everything we do for all of the kids who come to City Church. And so periodically, uh, I ask our congregation to step up and to live with purpose by serving our kids, by investing your life in the next generation. So I'm looking for 100 people who will see one, serve one every other week. See one service, serve one service every other week. And I'm, I'm going to say to the 1130 crowd, our, so I'm going to say something to you. I'm not saying to anybody else. Y'all getting it special straight from me. All right. Our greatest need is at one o'clock. Uh, I think what we've noticed over the years is our pattern is that's when like people who come and check us out for the very first time. That's oftentimes the service they come to. And, uh, and so we do have a little bit harder time at one o'clock in particular staffing Kid City. And so that would make 1130, which is our biggest service, uh, the service where I'm asking for some of you that would really make a difference if you would see one serve one every other week, all right? And, you know, the Kid City program has made a, a big impact in my own family. Both of my kids have come to believe in Jesus, partly because of the hundreds of volunteers who join with my family to pour themselves into my kids to help them believe. And so I'm asking you to do this, to prayerfully consider what you can do uh, to help pass on our faith to the kids. All right, so you can stop by the center pavilion at the end of the service to ask questions or to sign up. And, uh, you know, each week, uh, I don't know if you know this, we have 450 to 500 kids uh, that come to Kids City. So that's like bigger than most churches in San Antonio. So it's like we got this other church over there every week, and it's awesome and it's great. Um, but but it's, it's another reason why over these last few weeks, I've been asking those of you who call City Church your church to join me on a journey, and I've called it a generosity journey, because a part of what we have to do in a movement like this is to fund the movement. And so uh, if you call City Church your church, and, and you've already taken a step of faith on this journey, then I just want to say thank you, and may God bless you uh, in this journey. If you've not taken a step of faith on this journey, then I'm asking you to take one, and this is what I mean. If you have not given anything to the City Church movement, I'm asking you to become a new giver and to give for the first time. If you've already given something to the City Church movement, but you're not a consistent giver, then I'm asking you to prayerfully consider what you and your family can give on a consistent basis and give that each time you get paid. Become a consistent giver. If you are a consistent giver, then your step of faith, it's a pretty big one, I'm asking you to become a significant percentage giver or what the Bible calls tithing which is to give 10% of what you make to the movement here. And so I know that's a big step of faith, but I believe there's a blessing that goes with that. And, uh, and I believe you will see God work in powerful ways in your life. And then for those of you who are already percentage givers, then the step of faith I'm asking you to take is to become a legacy giver, which is to consider your legacy beyond even your own lifetime uh, by paying attention to God promptings to give above your 10% either for a need we have at church or a need with one of our social action partners or even a need in our community. 
And I do believe that when you give here, lives change here, and it does make a difference. Now, in this series, we're responding to some of the key problems that people have with Christianity. We're also seeking to answer some of the hardest questions that people have about the Christian faith. And if you were here last week, you, you noticed, or you remember that we looked at the, some of the tensions between science and Christianity. And uh, over the next few weeks, we're going to look at the problem of suffering, the problem of Christian uh, exclusivity, the problem of Christian hypocrisy. We're going we're to address those head on. Today, I want us to look at the problem of God's existence. Like, how do we know there's even a God? Now, I shared with you last week that, that this kind of a journey was very important for me personally in my own spiritual journey because even though I grew up in the church, I came to a place where I wasn't sure why I believed what I believe. I wasn't sure that there was any intellectual foundation to my faith. And I did get to the point where I didn't, I didn't like the simplistic answers. You know what I mean? Like, well, the Bible says it, so that settles it. Or, well, you just got to believe. And I just, I felt like if Christianity can't stand up to some reasonable intellectual questions, then it's a pretty weak religion. And so, you know, I, I began to explore the reasons why I believe what I believe. Why would anyone believe in God's existence? And, and I suspect that there may be some of you here who feel like I felt. Either you grew up in a religious background where you, <clears throat> you sensed it wasn't okay to ask hard questions. You were made to feel ashamed to ask hard questions. Like you just don't, you should just believe, you know, and so you didn't ask the hard questions. Well, I want to try to help you ask and answer some hard questions. Or maybe you grew up in the church and you believed somewhere along the way, but now you have doubts. You doubt your faith because you either... Uh, you either went off to college and maybe you heard something there that, uh, that shook your faith or maybe you had a really smart friend that shook your faith or you heard something on a podcast or on TV and it shook your faith and even though you had faith somewhere along the way, now you doubt your faith and, and you're not sure why you believe what you believe. And then others of you, you know, if you'd be honest, you would just say, you know, Pastor Brent, I'm, I don't know what I believe. I'm not sure, you know, what I believe. Well, that's, that's cool too. I, you know, part of what I want to do is to help those who aren't sure what you believe. I want to give you some reasons why I believe. And so uh, this, in this series, you know, I, we want to meet you wherever you are in your spiritual journey and help you along the way. And uh, so at City Church, we like to call ourselves a messy church. And we're messy because we create an environment of grace, a safe community of grace where people really can come wherever they are in their spiritual journey, even if they don't believe what we believe. That's fine. And, and, and I will say there are times when it makes things messy, but we're fine with that. And so what, what I want to do in this series is to give uh, atheists, agnostics, skeptics, critics, and open investigators a reason to believe. And I also want to help those of you who already believe have confidence that your faith is reasonable, logical, and intellectually sound. So let's get back to the problem for the day, the problem we're going to look at today. How do we know God exists? Why would anyone believe in God's existence? I mean, is God here? So, like, have you ever seen God? Have you ever heard God speak out loud, you know, in a way where you couldn't miss him? Well, so then why would you believe he is here. Well, I want to ask a parallel question. Why would anyone believe God is here? In fact, let me ask this question. How do you know anyone is here? 
Well, you either see the person, right? Okay, so I see you. Or you see the evidence a person was here. And you conclude a person is here. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. So I grew up with a really great mom. My mom just did everything. She worked, uh, she cooked, she cleaned, she took us kids to all kinds of activities. My mom did so much stuff. Sometimes I didn't see my mom do the stuff that she did. And so, like, like, like I, I know like on some days, you know, I would go out and play sports with my friends. And then I would come home and I'd go into my room and I would notice my room would be all straightened up. The furniture would be all dusted and then there would be my clothes would be clean and folded lying on my bed. Now, I didn't see my mom go into my room. I didn't see her there, but I believe she was there because of the evidence she was there. You see, you don't have to see someone here to believe someone was here. That's all I'm trying to say. And I mean, we make judgments like that all the time where we make reasonable conclusions that someone was here without personally seeing the person here. Let me give you another example. One of the kind of uh, TV shows that Barbara likes to watch are those crime shows based on, you know, real life events. So, you know, like Dateline and 2020. Well, anyway, one night I was watching this, this Dateline show with her and it was about a young woman who was murdered at the shop where she worked. The problem was nobody saw who did it. And there was no video evidence of who did it. And so the investigators began to look for different clues. And one of the pieces of evidence that they found, it was a very quirky kind of evidence. It was this piece of, of foam. It was about, you know, about that thick and it was about that long, like a thick pencil or something. And they found it at the crime scene, but there was no foam like that anywhere in the store. So they were pretty sure that uh, the, the person who did this brought the foam in with him or her, but they didn't know what it was. It was just so weird. Well, anyway, over time, they developed a suspect. And the suspect had the habit of not liking to tie and untie his shoes when he put his shoes on. And so he tended to wear out the back edge of all of his shoes. And so the investigators eventually got a search warrant. And they went to his home, and there in his closet, they found a pair of boots. And one of the boots had padding around the back edge. The other boot, it, the padding was missing. And when they cut that open, guess what they found? The foam padding that matched what they saw at the crime scene. And with other circumstantial evidence like that, they were able to convince a jury to make a decision that someone was there, even though none of those people saw that person there. You don't have to see a person here to believe a person was here. And here's my point. We make decisions and conclusions based on evidence that someone was here, even if we didn't see the person here. We decide to believe mom was in my bedroom. Why? Because of the evidence. We decide that this uh, criminal did something wrong. Why? Because of the evidence. We make decisions based on evidence. Our entire legal system is based on this idea. And so you don't have to see something to make an informed decision about something. You understand what I'm saying? And so today I want to give you some evidence. I say all that to say. Today I want to give you some evidence that God was there and that God is here. First piece of evidence. I want to uh, look at the evidence 
of design. The evidence of design. Design gives evidence of an intelligent designer. Now, this week, I want y'all to know my staff told me I could only be nerdy and sciencey for just a short time this week. So I know last week I got all sciencey on you and I was nerdy the whole time. So this, this week I only get to be nerdy just a little bit. Okay, so this is the little bit. Are you ready? So let me explain what I mean by the evidence of design. <clears throat> the argument for God from design says that complex, intricately designed systems that serve a purpose give evidence of an intelligent designer. Let me say that again. The argument for uh, God from design asserts that complex, intricately designed systems, you got this, that serve a purpose, give evidence of an intelligent designer. So, so like it, if you see a watch on somebody's uh, table, that gives evidence of an intelligent watchmaker. That watch did not come together by chance. Somebody designed the pieces and put it together to serve a purpose. You see what I'm saying? Or when you, when you come into a building, that gives evidence of an intelligent architect who designed it and put it together with his crew. Or, or like when you go to HEB and there's a line all the way around the outside of the building, what's that evidence of? The Selena bags are in. <laughs> Come on. You know it. We love Selena in San Antonio. Um, all right. Okay. So let me give you an example of an intricately designed system that serves a purpose that is in you right now. Back in 1953, molecular biologists discovered the DNA molecule. And the DNA molecule is just a super intricately designed system that serves a purpose. And in many ways, a DNA molecule is like a super high-charged computer system or your, like your cell phone. Bill Gates said this. Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft, said, the DNA molecule is like a computer system but far more advanced than any computer or software we've ever developed. In other words, whoever developed this system is way beyond where we are. So what did he mean by that? Let me see if I can explain the DNA molecule. It's like a computer or it's like your phone, okay? There's the hardware part that stores the information, right? Then there's the software part or the apps that processes the information, and then there's the information itself. And see, DNA has all three of those intricately uh, designed parts of the system. So, so like the DNA, the hardware part, if, the cell, if, if you don't have this part, uh, the, the phone doesn't work because it's the hardware part. And DNA has that. It's like those rods that you see in the DNA molecule. And then DNA has like these little pods that actually process the information. They send information back and forth, just like the apps do on my phone. And then, of course, there's the information itself, like, you know, the games or the text or the pictures that you have. And DNA has that as well. It has information in it. And here's, here's why this is such a big deal. The problem behind a chaotic, random, atheistic evolutionary process creating a system as complicated as DNA is there would be no reason for any of the parts to have evolved if the other parts were not already in existence at the same time. So let me, let me explain. All right, let me get my phone out again. There would be no reason for the phone to evolve if there wasn't information to be processed on it. And the information could not have existed and been processed without apps already on it. And so those, those system, the system had to come together all at the same time. You see where I'm going? All right. Uh, 
And oh, oh yeah, I'm sorry. It's, 11, it's 11.45 and my brain's getting tired. There's another. And if, okay, you with me? If, let, let's just say, I'll give you. The phone and the apps, boom, they just evolved out of nothing, okay? Where did the information come to begin with? DNA has information infused in it. Dr. Stephen Meyer has a PhD in science from Cambridge University. He concludes, our experience with information-intensive systems indicate that such systems always come from an intelligent source, i.e., from mental or personal agents, not from chance. When we observe effects we know only intelligent agents can produce, we rightly infer the presence of a prior intelligence, even if we did not observe the intelligent agent responsible. In other words, design gives evidence of an intelligent designer. And this intelligent design stuff, it's, I'm, we, I'm, we make decisions like this all the time. I'm going to give you another example. This is straight from Country Western Song. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, what's her name? Oh, Carrie, Under, Carrie Underwood. Her, her song, Before He Cheats. That song's all about evidence. Because when you see the lipstick on his collar, when you smell the perfume on his shirt, you have evidence that someone was there, even if you didn't see that person there. Just saying. Did I get somebody in trouble? I'm sorry. Oh, and it's not just that DNA gives you evidence. It that someone is here, that someone was there and is here, it gives you evidence of the kind of being that is here. Okay, follow with me. Okay, you go into your bathroom and you find tissues, dirty tissues, torn up all over the floor, cotton balls torn up all over the floor out of your, uh, uh, your garbage can. What does the evidence tell you about who was there? Was it your kids? Probably not. Was it your husband? Well, he is a slob, but probably not. Who was there? Your dog or your nasty cat? Nasty, nasty cats. Intelligent design is not just, it's not just like, oh, we found DNA and oh, there's an intricate system where all of the parts would serve no purpose if they didn't all come together at the same time. It's not like there's one example. It's that there's hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands all over the world. Folks, I think there's strong, strong evidence that an intelligent designer designed our world and our universe. And yeah, you may not be able to see him. God is a spirit being. I think there's some evidence that he was there and that he's here. You don't have to see someone here to believe someone's here. All right, second piece of evidence. And, and this one may surprise you that I'm going here. And that is the existence of evil. Evil gives evidence of an intelligent moral being. Now this reason right here is what convinced uh, author C.S. Lewis. You know, he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. He was a professor at Cambridge and he was an avowed atheist. But this reason right here convinced him to believe in God. And this was his thinking. He believed that the existence of moral awareness, which is what we have, which is why we call something evil, it pointed to a beginning of right and wrong, good and evil, that people who don't believe in God cannot explain adequately. Now, 
can I acknowledge something? Normally, the existence of evil is used to argue why God doesn't exist. You ever heard that? The, the thinking goes like this. If God is all good, and if God is all powerful, then he would just wipe out evil, because that's what I would do. But evil exists, so God must not exist. Have you ever heard something like that? And, and any of us, let me just say, any of us who have experienced evil or who have witnessed evil, we wonder, is God there? Does he even exist? And next week, we're going to unpack that a little bit more when we look at the problem of suffering, of human suffering. And so, you know, don't, uh, don't miss next week. But what I want us to focus on today is that inner sense of morality. Where do we get that barometer of right and wrong, good and evil? I mean, do you really think that it just evolved into us? I don't think that sounds logical, not to me, because there are no other living beings that have moral awareness. Let me explain what I mean. Okay, T take a big dog. When a big dog takes food away from a little dog, you know, we might feel sad for the little dog, but we don't call that act evil. It's just the way dogs are. The big dog gets the food he wants. You know, it's a dog-eat-dog world. That's why we have that phrase. I love dogs. Uh, or, but we don't call that evil. That's my point. Okay, or take when a lion eats a baby gazelle. Bambi. And, we, you know, we don't call that act evil. We feel sad about it, but we don't call that act evil, do we? And then, can we come back to the praying mantis? I love the praying mantis so much. I talked about it last week or a couple weeks ago. Okay, okay. So, if, oh, if you didn't hear it, this is so awesome. The female praying mantis, after she mates, eats the male that mated with her. <laughs> and I was just like, okay, what's the praying mantis? What's going on in her brain? It's like, okay, I got what I need from you. Uh, I'm hungry now. Chomp, 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 chomp. We don't call that act evil, do we? It's just a random act of a non-moral living thing, right? But when somebody lies or cheats or steals or expresses racism or abuses or rapes or murders, we call that wrong. We call it evil. Because we believe that human beings, other, unlike other animals and living things, have the ability to choose against our instinct. We have the ability to choose right from wrong, good from evil. And we hold each other accountable for that, don't we? But here, here's why I'm bringing this up. Where does that come from? Where does that come from? Where did we get this inner sense of morality? If there is no God, no first moral agent who put that, that instinct, that instinctive awareness of good and evil, right and wrong, where did it come from? Because if there is no first moral being who gave, gave, gives all of us that sense of right and wrong, good and evil, then really the, the distinction between right and wrong, good and evil is just a matter of personal preference. I mean, what's right for you is right for you, but then what's right for me may be different. You see what I'm saying? But you know what I found? All around the world. I've, I've had the fortune of traveling all around the world. I've been to, to all kinds of different cultures and, and continents and countries. I've been to India, been to Africa, been to uh, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, been to Central America, South America. And you know what I found is true all across the world? Every different culture has laws and cultural norms that express 
our own inner awareness that there is right and wrong, there is good and evil, and we say something about it. And, and, and can I just add, you know, I'm a Christian, but, and it's unrelated to religion. People of all religions have that. And all I'm saying is, where'd we get that? Where'd we get that inner sense? I believe our, the existence of morality, that inner sense of right and wrong, gives evidence of an intelligent moral being who created us in his image and gave it to us. You don't have to see a person here to believe a person is here. Now, this reason for God's existence, I think begs me to ask another question, and that is, so why would God allow evil to exist at all? You know what I mean? I, I think that's because evil must serve some purpose. If, if you go with me, that there is a God, an intelligent moral being, who has allowed evil to exist, it must serve some purpose. And so Alvin Plantinga is a professor of philosophy at Notre Dame, and he believes that the presence of evil and our awareness of right and wrong not only points to God's existence, but it gives us a sense of understanding of the purpose for evil. And so these are his words, and, and he helped me think through this whole issue of evil. Uh, Dr. Plantinga uh, argues God desired to love and be loved by similar beings. So God gave human beings free will because true love cannot be coerced or forced. Okay, now follow, follow his thinking. If I, force, if I create you where you can only do good and only show love and only believe in me, well, then you're a robot. You're not a free being in my image. God's risk was that he gave us free will so we could choose. Let's continue with his argument. Free will requires the real possibility some humans will choose evil. So evil exists because free, free will in morally aware beings requires evil to exist. Why did God risk it? Why would God risk allowing evil to exist? Why would God risk giving you and me free will? It's because of love. It's because of love. I mean, think about it. Why do intelligent adults create little beings in our image, despite all that comes with it? And I think you know what I'm saying. I mean, let's talk about the pregnancy. There's the weight gain, the discomfort, the nausea, the grumpiness, the pain, and that's just what happens to the husband. And then there's the actual birth itself. I've been there. It's gross. I don't care what they say about it. It's gross. Come on. And then there's all the pooping and the, the crying and the potty training. Oh, my gosh, the potty training. And, and then, okay, then these sweet little precious children, they become teenagers. And they start talking back and rebelling and dressing like Lady Gaga on steroids. And then we spend thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on these little beings in our image. And then they move out. They go out. And then guess what? They choose what they're going to do. They choose their own way. They make their own decisions. Why do we do it? It's because of love. Barbara and I risked created, creating beings in our own image so that we hope that one day they would love us the way we love them. And that's the risk of parenthood, and that is the grand risk of God, to create beings in his own image 
with the free will to choose to believe in him or not, to choose to love him or not. And that was God's grand risk. And I believe there is strong evidence that there is a God who is a morally aware being who created us to be morally aware beings so that we would know he is here. And that's why, you know, wrestling with all of this God's existence stuff matters because the Christian faith says that that God, that intelligent being who, who's a designer of the universe, who has moral awareness, gave us moral awareness, gave us the freedom to where we could choose right or wrong, good or evil, so that we could express love to him the way he loves us because he wants to be in a relationship with us. He wants to be our father. And so one of the writers of Jesus' story and his miracles and his teachings is named John. And John's account of Jesus' life links creation to the metaphor of childbirth to our relationship with the living God. You ready? This is John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made by him, and without him nothing was made that has come into being. And the word, that word that was with God and was God, became flesh and lived among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And he came to those who were his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him by believing in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The Christian faith believes that that word, the son of the living God, existed before creation existed. He was with God and was God, and through him all things were made. And then that word became a human being and lived among us, and we call him Jesus. And he came to reveal what God is really like, a being full of grace and full of truth, not one or the other, both. And we believe that when he came, he came to give us, did you notice what the word they said? The right, not the opportunity, not the privilege, but the right to be able to become children of God. That's pretty awesome. And you know what that tells me? The living God who created this universe loves you. He wants to be your father. He wants you to be his child. And did you notice what John said about how we become children? We don't become children of God by getting our act together. Look, I hope you get your act together. I hope I can get my act together. But that's not how you become a child of God. And you don't become a child of God by doing religious rituals. I like religious rituals. We do religious rituals here at City Church. But that's not how you become a child of God. You don't become a child of God by going to church more. I hope you go to church more. I think it'd be good for you, but that's not how you become a child of God. You don't become a child of God by doing enough good deeds to pay for your bad deeds. I hope you do, do more good deeds. I think you would feel better about yourself in your life, but that's not how you become a child of God. You become a child of God by believing in the Son of God. And here's the beauty of the Christian faith. We believe that the same God who allowed evil to exist knew that by giving us all free will, that we would all at times, let's just be honest, when we think about evil, it's all oh, that evil out there, but we would all at times do the wrong thing. We've all done wrong sometime. We've all done the bad thing sometime. 
I have too. Here's what's beautiful. We believe that the God who allowed evil to exist and gave us free will became one of us and paid for every wrong we could ever do. He allowed evil to exist and then he paid for it so that we could have the right to become children of God. And that tells me that God, the living God, loves you right now the way you are. He wants to be your father and he invites you to be his child. I believe there is strong evidence that God exists and that he loves you. And I'm asking you to believe too. Let's pray together. And, you know, if you're on that journey where you're still not sure what you think, what you believe yet, I, I, don't, I don't want to rush you. I want to give you time. People gave me time to figure out what I believe, and I want to give you time to figure out what you believe. But for those, some of you, you're ready. You, you've seen the evidence, and it's not just what I said today. You know there's a God. And so I want to lead you to become a child of the Father who loves you. So I'm just going to lead you in a, in a brief prayer. You can just whisper this as I lead you through it. You ready? God, I believe in you. And I believe you love me. And I believe Jesus is your son. And I believe he paid for all of the wrongs I've ever done. And so I ask you to forgive me of my sins and to make me your child. Thank you. And Lord God, I ask in response to that prayer of faith that you would do what you promised. You promised if we would believe in your son that you would make us your children. You promised that you would give us your spirit, a part of yourself who would live within us and, and that you would remove from us the burden of guilt, the stain of sin. I pray that you would just remove it, lift it from us as we are now your children. And then, Lord, my prayer is that for those who become your children, that they could live out of that vision of who they are. I pray that you would give them a vision for life, a vision that they represent you now. They are children of the living God. And I pray that you would give them courage and faith to live out of that vision of who they are. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen. If you uh, just expressed your faith in the living God who is now your father, uh, one of the ways that we express that faith to others that Jesus asked us to do is through the powerful symbol of baptism. And so we're going to be having our next baptisms uh, next month in April. Uh, so you can go online to sign up or you can uh, stop by the Connection Pavilion at the end of the service and sign up for baptisms. Uh, also, we believe in, in a living God who responds to prayer. We believe in the power of prayer. In fact, that may become one of the reasons you believe in God is answered prayer. And so we have our prayer team is gonna be available in the front. If you have a need in your life, please let us serve you by praying for you and with you. And then remember, I'm looking for 100 people who will step up and join the Kid City team. See one, serve one every other week. God bless you, go in peace. We'll see you next week. <laughs>